Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. And welcome into another episode of the damn podcast here on the 24 seven sports podcast network and powered by beaverblitz.com. I'm your host, Carter Baines, joined as always by beaverblitz.com publisher, Angie Machado. Thank you everyone for joining us for this absolutely huge game recap episode of the damn podcast. We are reliving Oregon state's remarkable, miraculous comeback against Oregon in the 126th meeting between the Beavers and Ducks, it ends in an absolute classic with the Beavers coming out victorious 38-34 after trailing by 21 points at Research Stadium. We are going to relive all of it, talk about the impact of the win, uh, rank it against some of the other games in this series, talk about the atmosphere, some of the injuries that came up. Of course, we will have a discussion about the Pac-12 refs. Uh, look through the stat book. We'll go through some of the big plays, answer some of your questions, and revisit our keys to the game on top of pretty much everything else that we ad lib throughout the show. I have a feeling we are going to go well over time as we recap this. Angie, I'll bring you in here and just get... <laughs> can you can you even put into words what your emotions are after that game um, just from a, from a media member standpoint, from an Oregon state alum standpoint, from the standpoint of somebody who worked for the university, uh, what this win means for the Oregon state football program, for the state of Oregon, for the university as a whole. Um, and for just about everybody who watched that football game, can you, can you even describe what it means and what your feelings are? Yeah, I think, I think all of those hats that you mentioned all kind of, have a different impact, but they all are huge. So if when I worked at Oregon State as a fundraiser, I'm thinking about how this win and how this season will help catapult fundraising for the athletic department. Um, from a media standpoint, um, and as an alumni, as an alumni, I'm just proud of, of my university for, you know, taking that step. But as a media member, and, you know, you and I, Carter, it, it's, yes, we're media, but we cover these guys, and you really get to know the coaches and the players, and you've we've watched them really persevere from some really dark spots some really low places for this program. And to watch some of these young men and coaches 
take that step. I, I guess I feel proud for them. I feel happy that that hard work has paid off. Um, I feel there, I mean, there's a lot, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy for these young men and their families um, for being able to reap these benefits that uh, all these, this hard work has, is actually paying off. Before we go any further, I have to remind everybody who's who's watching us live on YouTube, thank you for doing so. And, and for listening to us uh, on your favorite podcast app, you, you can find us pretty much anywhere now, um, as long as you've got the right show page. We, we assume at this point, after a full football season, if you uh, if, if you were a, an old listener of ours, you've probably found the new show page. Um, but I have to remind everybody of this incredible offer we have at beaverblitz.com right now, a 75% off an annual subscription. Seriously, like I cannot think of a better time to do it than after a win like this, when our content is at an all-time high, when discussion in the lodge uh, is is absolutely taking off. Angie, some of the benefits that come with this 75% off deal, um, you're not going to find it for pretty much the rest of the year. No, in fact, we probably won't see this deal again until probably August. So what you'll get with this full year is you, you get the rest of this football season, the bowl game, the analysis there, the lead up, recruiting, early signing period, um, regular signing period in February. You'll get basketball coverage. You get baseball coverage. You have spring camp coverage, all the recruiting then for 2024 and 2025, transfer portal going right into summer. Carter, you know, there's no downtime. So um, and then you'll get all the next football season as well. So this is the time to do it. It works out to $26.85 for the whole year. If you want to do the math, that's $2.24 a month. That is cheaper than my Starbucks. So um, now's the time to do it. It's our Cyber Monday deal. It will be gone tomorrow. So it is definitely a time to, to join Beaver Blitz. Now's the time to take advantage of that. All right, let's talk about uh, some of the news that came out today on Sunday as we record this, uh, the, the rankings update. Of course, you get the AP poll and the coaches poll that both come out Sunday morning in Oregon State, shot up both of those, moving up to number 16 in both polls, up from number 22. Uh, they've kind of they've kind of been in lockstep with each other here for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Beavers up six spots to number 16 in the AP 25 and the coaches polled the college football playoff rankings will come out Tuesday at 4 p.m. The Beavers at number 16 are now one spot ahead of UCLA and one spot behind Oregon. And I think the immediate reaction from Oregon State fans is, wait, what the heck? Beavers and Ducks are both nine and three. Oregon State doesn't have a 46-point loss on its resume and it has a head-to-head -head win. Why on earth are those guys in Eugene ranked ahead of Oregon State. That was at least my reaction, and I think the reaction I saw on Twitter. Um, regardless, Oregon State has its highest ranking since late in the 2012 season when the Beavers were a top 15 team going into the Alamo Bowl. Yeah, so a friend of mine sent me this tweet. Okay, this is just something to look at. So Alabama 6, Tennessee is 8, same record, Tennessee 1, head-to-head. -head. LSU is ranked 13, FSU 14, same record, FSU 1, head-to-head. Oregon 15, Oregon State 16, same record, Oregon State one head-to-head, -head. Utah 12, UCLA 17, same record, UCLA one head-to-head. -head. So we're not the only ones out there. There's there's some question marks out there, but um, I'm anxious to see Tuesday what that uh, CFP comes out with. Potential for Oregon State to jump into the top 15 there, I think. Uh, you know, Just going into this week, a spot higher at number 21 in the CFP rankings, um, they, they do 
value head to head. So they've said, and, and so we've seen in the past, consistency is not always the name of the game with that committee, but um, we will see what happens there. Again, that's Tuesday at 4 p.m. Those are the rankings that we will go off of at Beaver Blitz as soon as they come out. Uh, the Beavers, of course, will have an off week this week and, and likely next week as they await their bowl game destination. Uh, so that ranking will probably hold somewhat steady over the next couple of weeks before the Beavers uh, play their next game. That's the update on the rankings front. So let's, Andrew, let's talk about the impact of this win for Oregon State. We, we kind of opened it with it with it there, talking about you know what it means to to a variety of of stakeholders here, but. Oh, let's let's start with our, our favorite memories in, in the rivalry series. All right. For me going into this week, I would say probably 2016. Okay. I, that was, that was the first win I had seen in person. Um, you know, I, I have vivid memories of standing there in the rain, watching that thing unfold, but there is no way after what happened on Saturday at research stadium that I can say that anything in my lifetime tops the 2022 win as far as my favorite memory in this series. Yeah, I, I can go back a little further. Um, I know this one's right up there. And and you guys know, I think most of you guys that have listened to the damn podcast for some time or been on Blitz know my absolute number one favorite Beaver memory of all time was the 98 Civil War. Um, that game, just I think what it meant for the program and what um, – you know, that double overtime win against a team Oregon was kind of had already turned the corner somewhat, had made their first Rose Bowl back in 94. Um, what it meant, Ken Simonton, um, I mean, Jonathan Smith, I mean, that whole that whole crew. 2000 was exciting. The the Joey five picks. It was it was a day very much like yesterday where the fog lifted 1230 kick. Um, Reeser was jam packed. It was loud. It was rowdy. Um, and Oregon State took care of business though from the get-go 2016 was exciting but i this one yeah this game was just bananas i we re-watched it this morning carter i got up at like 6 30 this morning and made my coffee and then we sat down and watched it and talk about and we'll kind of go through this i think with our game flow a little bit but you know i felt like that first quarter oregon state really i mean they had a three-point lead but it felt like oregon state was kind of in control um and then when those Bad, the bad spot really kind of took some wind out of Oregon State sales. Um, and then you had the interception. Then they come out the third quarter, had the other interception. Um, and it was, it felt like, I mean, all momentum was Oregon. It felt like Reeser kind of turned to a quiet, I think Eric called it a mausoleum. I mean, it was mm-hmm. so quiet and it was just kind of, but nobody left. And then when things started turning around, you and I kept looking at each other and we're like, um, there's time. What's happening? What's <laughs> yeah. happening? Is wait, this, is this real life? Like, wait. And then it became this whole, I mean, if I was to tell you, Carter, that Oregon State would pass, have six pass completions in that game, three turnovers, and win the game, you would laugh at me and think I was an idiot. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of a, you know, a look ahead to our revisiting the keys to the game. You and I both said Oregon State needed to get a passing game going. And of course, they they pass it four times <laughs> in the second half. And none of that was during the 21 point comeback. They, yeah. they came back from down 21, scored four touchdowns without throwing the ball a single time. I think that is a testament to 
Brian Lindgren and Jonathan Smith just diving into Oregon State's identity, being one of those teams that wants to beat you at the point of attack, set the tone in the trenches, and just run the ball down your throat. And they did that for about 10 to 15 minutes as they pulled off one of the best comebacks I have seen in in any sport at any level, um, and and to do it on that stage too. Yeah. Well, and then know, was, was so just, it, what was what was really interesting too is so I saw somebody put this on Instagram. It was really interesting. So, so to tell you that they would score or have six pass completed passes, you know, three turnovers, but to, to win that game, come back without QB one, without tight end one, without running back one, without um, starting center, without guard, starting guard with Marco Brewer being out. Um, And then um, without one of your cornerbacks. I mean, it was, unreal when you went down this list of how many guys then were kind of out that second half and they still did it yeah i I mean jonathan smith will tell you no team is playing at full strength but man you look at down the list of of injuries the last couple of weeks for oregon state and i i I bet you would be hard pressed to find a team with with more impact key guys missing time down the stretch we'll get to that injury track in just a, a few minutes but back to just kind of the the big picture impact of this win. And I want to save some of this for a discussion later in the week. And and as we kind of gear up for bowl season and, and need some discussion points, but we have to talk about now this tying Oregon state's best regular season record since 2006, 2012, the Beavers went nine and three, um, Oh six, they won nine games in the regular season as well. But if, if you look at that twenty uh, that two thousand six season, and that was actually a thirteen game regular season. So as far as twelve game regular seasons go, this ties with two thousand twelve for the most wins in a regular season since two thousand, making it one of Oregon State's best football seasons in program history. history. Which you know, going into this season, Angie, you and I both said this team has the chance to do something special. You picked them to win ten wins. I called you a little bit crazy, but said, you know what? I can see where it's coming from. They're now on the verge of their third 10 win season in program history. They can get that there with crazy. a whole game win. And we're going to sit here after all of it is said and done and say, we just witnessed one of the all time great seasons in Oregon state football history. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And, and I think Beaver fans are actually maybe starting to realize that it's maybe starting to sink in. I, I asked that question a few times at the press conference last night after the game, because I don't think the players really quite understand that they have the chance with the bowl game to be the third team yeah. ever in Oregon state history. And they, they kind of looked at me a little like they didn't know that, but I think it's sinking in with fans too. And, and I, that's one point Carter I want to make is that I hope fans never lose that excitement of what a nine or 10 win season really means because I think you look at those guys down south, those guys, and a nine-win season, and there's guys throwing people under the bus. There's fans, you know, jumping off the ship. I mean, because it's kind of like natty or bust. Okay, it's it's a really hard thing to do. And then so, a lot of bust and not a whole a lot, lot of bust. natty. Yes, yes. <laughs> but but you see what I'm go- where I'm going with that. I mean, it's yeah. I hope Oregon State doesn't lose ever lose that. Um, sense of excitement for a right. really good season. And, you know, it's a discussion for another day too, but the ceiling at Oregon state obviously is a bit lower than the ceiling at Oregon, as far as, um, you know, 
facilities, money, donors, boosters, NIL, everything, you know, you, you, you have to put everything inside this, this vacuum of, okay, well, what is realistic at Oregon state and a nine win regular season has been the ceiling like this, you know, Oregon state is at the ceiling of what it has set um, as kind of the precedent for success uh, at this program. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if, um, if, if the Beavers can build on it and avoid the letdown seasons that we have seen, you know, after these, these years go back to 2013, 2014, kind of that downturn after the last nine win regular season, we'll see if they can sustain that success. Um, Rivalry series history, Oregon state has now won two of the last three against Oregon. The Beavers have won each of the last two at Reeser and three of the last four at home. We're starting to see the, the tides kind of, turn a little bit. I mean, Oregon State obviously went a full decade without winning a game in this series before snapping that in 16. And now it's, it's, it's even, you know, and, and if the game's being played at Reeser, Oregon State has like, you go into it thinking the Beavers are going to win. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been kind of fun to see it get more and more competitive over the last half decade. Um, and to a point where at, at kickoff, Oregon State was favored in Vegas. Yeah. Well, but you ask Duck fans, and Oregon State is not their rival, it's Washington. But I think if you look at the players, Oregon State was plenty rival for them with how chippy it went. I, I see um, Hunter in the comments wanted to make sure we didn't get punched after the game. We we survived, <laughs> yeah. um, did not get punched. So there was there was a little there was a lot of emotion on both sides of that of that game. Yeah, and, and we had a brief discussion about this with um, with Eric Scopel on Thursday in our or sorry Wednesday. Um, in our, our game preview episode about, well, what does this mean for Oregon? Like, you know, here Oregon fans say, oh, UW is is the real rival. This game doesn't mean much against the Beavers anymore. It's not competitive, what whatnot. What I mean, the emotion that you saw on the field with DJ Johnson punching an Oregon State fan um, tells, tells me it means a little bit of something to those guys over there as well. And I think Dan Lanning being a guy who embraces rivalry, you saw him kind of dive into yeah. it as well. So... Um, yeah, there's that. It also, there's now there's the impact of this as well, where Oregon state holds the ducks out of the PAC 12 title game with that win and Washington winning, um, the apple cup sends Utah to go meet USC in Las Vegas. And uh, Angie, I don't know if you read the, um, the, the story from John Canzano about the Oregon booster yeah. dropping $11,000 on a suite at Allegiant stadium at halftime a little bit of buyer's remorse there. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, anytime I, I feel like Oregon state fans and, and, you know, they'll never admit it, but the players and, and coaches, anytime they get a chance to hold Oregon back from something, it's a win in their books. Um, and I, I have certainly seen that unfold throughout the fan base here as, as Oregon state basically said, no, sorry, your season's over. Which it's interesting. Like you said, I mean, Jonathan Smith barely, I mean, you see, he barely smiles. He's so stoic all the time. He cracked a smile or two in this in this press conference after the game, but it means a lot to the players. And you can see these guys on social media. Probably, I, I, Jonathan probably wouldn't like to see some of the FTD and some of that, but um, yeah, it means something to these guys too. Looking at the postseason as well for for the Oregon State perspective, uh, again, this will be a talking point that we'll dive into over the next couple of weeks before we actually find out where Oregon State is going bowling. Um, but, but looking at the Pac-12 standings, looking at the two teams that are making the title game, 
I come out of this thinking Oregon State has an increased probability of getting to a bowl game better than the Sun Bowl um, because of that win. And, you know, we went into it saying that there was a bit of a catch-22 where, like, you know, if Oregon State loses, maybe that propels Oregon up and you get three teams in the New Year's Six. And so, like, it's kind of a silver lining of losing. You might go to Vegas. You might go to San Diego. Well, now I think worst-case scenario is Oregon State and UCLA are tied for that Las Vegas Bowl spot. Um, with you know the the biggest bull getting to choose between the Bruins and Beavers, and then the one that does not get picked goes to El Paso. So, you know, we went from saying, okay, there's about a 95% chance that the Beavers are going to the Sun Bowl to saying, I think it's a little bit closer to 50-50 now, especially with the way these two teams, yeah. uh, the Beavers and Bruins, have closed the season. I think there's something there. You know, I I, I think a bull game would be willing to take a shot on the Beavers, considering the way they played down the stretch. Um, the way the fan base has showed out at these home games, you know, the, the, the bowl games take notice of these types of things. Um, so again, a, a conversation for, um, for another day as, as we gear up for bowl season, but I do think there is a chance that Oregon state kind of gets out of, um, that El Paso or bust type mentality here. I don't know. See, I, I always take the account that, you know, if any team is going to get kind of screwed over, it's going to be beavers. So, um, I, I, I think, the Vegas bowl is definitely in play, but I want, what I wonder is Oregon state's going to travel to Vegas, but UCLA has the bigger TV market. So Mm -hmm. what, what are those TV execs going to, and the bowl execs looking for? Personally, I think you, you go for the, the travel because then that helps your, you know, your hotels and, and all your restaurants, but Hey, you saw that spot in the second quarter. You can't count anything (laughs) in the Pac-12. You say, are, are you saying that the fix is in? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying I, I just don't trust. Anything you just can't. You just can't count I, on I, them doing no, anything right. No, I, I no, I, I just yeah. can't. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's flip our attention to the game atmosphere because Angie, this was your first trip to Reeser this year. Um, you and I went up to to Portland at Providence Park and covered that game together. But um, for the most part, it's it's been a solo venture for me inside Reeser, inside that press box. So. Um, I, I didn't actually get a chance to ask you after the game what your thoughts on the setup was, you know, the, the temporary press box, um, the atmosphere, the fan base, the student section yeah. showing out and, and filling that section an hour and a half before kick. Uh, what were some of your takeaways on the atmosphere there at Reeser? The atmosphere was unreal for being a half full stadium. I, In fact, I love it. I, I wish if Oregon State can't sell out, you just put everybody on one side because I think it just mm-hmm. it made it so um, loud. And of course, it was coming at us. Temporary press box is nothing, nothing great. Um, just it is. And that's the reason that I most of the time stayed home to watch because I was running game threads and the viewing angles are not good, but no. Um, no, it was good to be down there. I got to see some people got to be on the field. The field was unreal too. pregame. It just had that big game feeling to it. Um, but no, the student section, I mean, hats off to those guys because seriously, literally, when or yeah, hats off. When when Oregon State was down thirty-one to ten, and it did feel like it was just this quiet, kind of no energy stadium. I looked across, thinking that we'd start, we would have seen students starting to file out, and they didn't. Yeah. So Oregon State students, uh, dude, I wish that the atmosphere was that good when I was a student at Oregon State. To be fair, the enrollment is a bit larger now than it, it was. Is. At, at that time, and it continues to grow. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason we see this student section continue to grow and grow and become more and more engaged. Um, but I got to say, Angie, 
to see that section full of that entire bottom row of the east side of research full 60 to 90 minutes before kickoff on a consistent basis, but specifically against USC and against Oregon, it, it tells me that, you know, the, the students are, are engaged again. And, and that yeah. hasn't always been the case over the last decade. Um, and, and they're loud too. And, you know, they, they love the, the cowboy hat giveaway. I thought that was awesome. Oh, it um, looked awesome. amazing. It looked good from the beginning. Like when they were all lined up um, and 6,000 student tickets were gone in, I think, 20 minutes on Monday. Yeah. It's crazy incredible um i know some of those some of those cowboy hats made their way into the locker room and, and made for some some yeah. great celebratory pictures as well um yeah so on the flip side you know the energy like you said was so zapped from that stadium during the meltdown and and yeah. during you know it when it looked like oregon state was folding and just frankly giving up but even then, you can even really hear the the Oregon fans. I know that their section was, you know, up in the up in the nosebleeds in, in Valley View, and, and the band was up there as well. But the the just the lack of green that was scattered throughout the rest of the stadium, um, unlike years past. You know, in years past, you, it has been it's never been 50-50, but it's been closer to it. Um, but I I would estimate 80, 85 to yeah, potentially ninety percent orange and black there yeah. um so even when the ducks were rolling it, it never felt like a hostile environment for the home team no and um they never really did get any you know any momentum when they started their meltdown um their i mean their fans were so kind of just spread out and there was another contingent kind of to the right of us mm-hmm. down in the end zone um, i did hear them a couple times but no it was home field advantage and um yeah, the fans need to take a bow because it really does. And and I can only imagine what it would have felt like to be on the Oregon State sideline. Right. You know, right down there where it's where you can feel that energy. And especially during the comeback too, when it got yes. with, with it got each louder. touchdown, you know, yeah. each each of those four touchdowns got progressively and progressively louder. Um, and then just at, at the end, just completely exploded. I mean, that is yeah. I, I will say even at 28,000 or, or close to 30,000 with standing room only, that is one of the loudest moments I have ever heard at Research Stadium when the clock hit triple zeros and when they started pouring onto the field, Ben Branson takes the knee and starts running over to the sideline. Jonathan Smith gets a bunch of water dumped on him by Winston Russell. That is one of the loudest moments I've ever heard at Research Stadium. And again, just a testament to the fan base all year long showing up and making such a huge impact even in a, a crazy year where half the stadium is off limits due to construction and you have like two thirds of your attendance, everybody who has showed up has been loud and, and engaged in every game. Um, and none more. And it makes a difference than this one. I mean, Oregon had some moments that you saw them. Bo Nix had trouble getting his calls out or, yeah. you know, trying to communicate so that it does make a big difference. Very similar to what we saw against USC when Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams had to burn three timeouts in the first, what, like 20 minutes of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, Impressive stuff, again, from from the Oregon State fan base. Um, Okay, so one, we we talked about how kind of the momentum changed uh, when the Pac-12 refs did Pac-12 ref things. And that's (laughs) when the energy was zapped from the stadium. That's when the players were literally walking during some plays and and everything just looked flat and and frankly dead um let's talk about it this is a discussion we have to have and you know luckily from an oregon state perspective we get to have this conversation in the context of a win rather than a loss because i think if oregon state did end up losing this game that 
horrendous spot by the officiating crew would have been scrutinized even more heavily. Um, just because Oregon State came back and won this thing doesn't mean that they, you know, that that this call should fly under the radar and, and say, oh, well, it didn't hold Oregon State back. Now, if you want change at the Pac-12 officiating level, we have to continue to beat this drum about how it's unacceptable. And for Oregon State to essentially have points taken off the board because they're at the five-yard line, yeah. they're about to score, make it a two-possession game. Um, and then for it to flip and, and you know, all the momentum all the momentum goes to Oregon and, and, and the Ducks score multiple touchdowns in a row. All of that stemmed from a, a horrific spot that robbed Damian Martinez of a first down that Angie happened on the five-yard line, right which is exact, exactly where our seats are. My seat is on the five-yard line. Um, and in real time, you and I said, oh, all right, first down, here yeah. we go, first and goal coming up. Not only did they spot him short, despite his knees being across the five-yard line, despite the ball clearly being close to, if not at the four, not only do they do they call it wrong on the field, but they confirm it via review. They had, yeah, I, they somehow had indisputable evidence to tell them that he was a yard short of the line to gain, and I, I still have. No I, idea I, yeah, how. so that and that that one that was the third down call. That was egregious. I mean, his knees were on the five. So it's like they forgot the rules of football that you're supposed to spot where the ball is, not where the knees go down. So, no, it was horrible. The replay showed it so clearly. Um, it was it was no question, you know. Um, the second one was a little closer, but it should never have been to a fourth down call right. because he should have had the first down. And then it, going down a little bit later, it didn't end up mattering because Oregon State got the touchdown. But if you remember, so the other end of the field – Jack Coletto went in and he was clearly in for a touchdown that mm -hmm. they said he was short. I mean, and it didn't go just Oregon State's way. I mean, right. Oregon State's were the most egregious and the most um, momentum killing. Sure. Um, but I mean, and this is the same stuff that's been going on for years. I mean, I think back to the, was it Washington State game a couple years ago and some bad spots, a Washington game a couple years ago, horrible spots for Oregon State. And we keep hearing from the new commissioner that this is getting cleaned up, but it hasn't been. And I think Canzano tweeted during the game that you, you cannot let up. The media, the fans have got to stay on this because it's an embarrassment. Yeah, PM also points out in the chat the uh, the phantom pass interference call against Oregon yes. State where the pass was about five yards over Chris yeah. Hudson's head. Um, that's okay if you call holding, but if you call pass interference, it has to be catchable, and it clearly was not. So, again, the missed calls went both ways. Oregon State, to, to the officiating crew's credit, I guess, has to come back on fourth down and convert that. You know, the Beavers still got another chance to pick up a yard, and they didn't. Um, on the third and, and fourth down play. But I, I thought it was eerily reminiscent of the 2020 season. And you saw multiple bad calls in that season just completely just show up yeah. again. This is, again, a, a consistent issue that shows up on an annual basis in this conference where you go back to 2020, Oregon State's playing at Washington at Husky Stadium. Jermar Jefferson clearly gets two first downs and is called short on both of them both on back-to-back -back plays. Again, right in front of me on my line of sight in the press box. Um, and, and you know, again, that we, we go back and we say that decision and yeah. that call by the officiating crew cost Oregon State that game. A couple of weeks later, Oregon State versus Oregon, Research Stadium. The very end of that game, Tristan Jebbia clearly sneaks in 
They call him short. And then his hamstring gets torn on the very next play. But luckily for Oregon State, in that case, Chance Nolan snuck it in on fourth down and won it. But again, a, a potentially game-changing call, a career-ending call, essentially, for Tristan Jebbia, um, and, and something that shows up. And, and you know, you saw both of those rear their head once again in this game. Um, we don't have enough time to dive into this no. any further. But even the but... even the, the ABC announcers, I wanted to hear what they said, and they couldn't even believe it because they thought it was a first down like you and I did at the, you know, right when he ran, like, okay, we've got the first down. And then they're like, wait, oh, wait, they're going to, you know, oh, they're going to, they're putting out the five. So they went back and watched, and they're like, they could not, they're like, okay, it'll get turned over, overturned. And then when it didn't, they were speechless. I think uh, potentially the most glaring just example of ineptitude there was the fact that they had measured it on third down <laughs> and said, okay, you know, he's about a yard and a half short. But they didn't need where, to measure it, it because we, you can see. Right. And, and then the, <laughs> so the, the measurement to begin with was unnecessary, yeah. but then the fact that they measured it again on fourth down, even though the ball yes. was spotted on the, the exact same, same place. Like, did we forget that we just measured this a minute ago? Well, and they I, had the, the, the guy that came running in to make the spot was in the end zone. Yeah. It, it was just, <laughs> I, I can't. I, I mean, yeah, something has to change because it's just too many times. And so this is, too, I mean, we just named what five times just in right. the past two years that it's happened that we know like egregiously to Oregon State. How many other times has it happened across the conference? Yeah, a lot. A lot. I mean, go back to earlier this year when USC had the ball. It's I, I can't remember who they were playing. It, it must might have been Arizona or something. Uh, and they were driving, and they had about seven seconds left in the half, and just inexplicably, the refs say, all right, half's over, time to go to the locker room. Yeah. It's mismanagement of the game on a yeah. on a continuous basis. In the if that was SEC, those guys would not have jobs. Like, after that weekend, they would not have jobs. Yeah. Again, didn't cost Oregon State the game, but it certainly looked like it was going to. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the injury update because, uh, again, like we said earlier, the injury bug continues to bite Oregon State. Um, we saw Jack Coletto, James Griffin, Jaden Grant, Alex Austin, Deshaun Fenwick, and he didn't get in the game, but Tyler Moreno, or Tyler Morano, we assume was available. All of those guys come back from injuries after missing the game at Arizona State last weekend. Anthony Gould was the lone holdout from last week's group of injuries. So um, really a, a swath of, of Beavers coming back from injury, which was good to yeah. see them, uh, especially the seniors, you know, Coletto, Grant. Um, some of those guys get on the field one last time at Reeser after um, battling injuries the last couple of weeks. You know they weren't at 100%. John McCartan was was clearly hobbled. He had that um, the ankle wrapped up and you know left the game, came back after it was wrapped up again. So you know these guys are playing through so much, but um, particularly for their for those seniors, you knew it wasn't going to hold them out. In I this mean, Jaden Grant and Jack Coletto, I was I hoped we saw them, and you knew that those two would do anything they could to be in that game. Yeah. Trey Lowe was unavailable after uh, standing on the sideline. Enough, and, yeah. Right. So, you know, we, we saw Isaiah Newell come in, in in a spot where we assumed we would see Trey Lowe. Um, so he was clearly not good enough to go. Rajon Wright actually left this game around halftime. I think it was early third quarter, if I remember right. Um, and we, we assume it's a hand or wrist injury because he came to the press conference with, you know, kind of one of those air cast well, brace so type things on his this wrist. This is where the TV sometimes helps so i guess remember when he went out a week or two ago yes the tv crew said he was 
uh, playing with a broken thumb. Okay. So maybe it re-injured it or it did look like a wrist though. And yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, he, he did leave that ASU game uh, midway through. I was, you know, we, we heard that it was a hand yeah. injury at the time. Um, some said that there was nothing wrong, but there was clearly something that, something that wrong. flared up again yeah. uh, in that Oregon game. Damian Martinez also left the game after a 43 yard run, which actually, I, I mean, I think that was the turning point in this game. I, I yeah. think that sparked it, you know, when Marti- Martinez had that 43 yard run, um, his, his night was done after he crossed the 100 yard mark for the sixth straight game. And then Jam Griffin, Isaiah Newell, and uh, Deshaun Fenwick stepped up in his absence. I'm, I'm hoping Martinez the, is not serious, though, because it looked like a knee. Yeah. Jake Levengood is the other key injury that occurred in this game. And and that was, what, first or second quarter? And we were actually yeah. told, Angie, that, that he was good to go and that he would return. Yeah. Uh, but he did not get he back not. onto the field. And Tanner Miller took over at center. Um, again, you know, these guys will have a couple of weeks to get back. Uh, and, and fully healthy, but didn't look great at the time for either Martinez or Levengood. Levengood yeah. was down for a few minutes there. Yeah, but he was walking without crutches post game. I saw him celebrating in the locker room. So one guy that I, I did, did see limping after the game was Kyrie Fisher Morris, yeah. who left uh, very late, I believe, in the fourth quarter with what looked like a knee injury. Um, again, another guy who came into the post game press conference, but was clearly limping afterwards. So you know, we'll see. Uh, like I said, they've got a couple of weeks, you know, 14, 21 days, potentially more if Oregon State um, plays in one of those late bowls to get healthy again. But of course, you know, injuries pile up at the end of the season, but you always hate to see it. Yeah. I mean, I just hope these guys get, get well fast. All right. We're close to the halfway point. Again, I have no idea how long we're going to go today. I, I think we're going to go pretty long as we recap this thing. There's so much to talk about, but we do have to take a quick break here to remind everyone about the 75% off deal we have at Beaver Blitz. Angie, tell the people about it. Yeah, this is your chance to save 75% off an annual membership to beaverblitz.com, which will give you also access to the entire 24-7 network of sites. You'll get access to all of the great guests we've brought on. um, So all those Pac-12 sites, you can read their great work. You also have Greg Biggins, uh, Brandon Huffman, Blair Angulo, Steve Wiltfong, a huge staff of recruiting experts and... uh, the Lodge. I mean, Oregon State is the number one independent source for all your Oregon State analysis and community. So definitely jump on $2.24 a month is what it works out to. Total no-brainer. Um, join us. We'd love to see you. This deal ends tomorrow, Monday. So uh, you don't want to miss the Cyber Monday deal. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It was a very bright, shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. 
Let's move into the stat book. And this is, again, Angie, the, the part of the show where we get to highlight some individual performances, position group performances, highlight some of the coaching decisions as well. Um, and it starts with a look at the scoreboard where Oregon State ends up victorious at 38-34. But that 34 for the Ducks doubled the next highest scoring total by an opponent at Research Stadium. So Oregon having really all sorts of offensive success against one of the best defenses in the conference. But it was those fourth down plays. It was a, a couple of special teams errors that cost the Ducks. And, you know, 34 points at, at Reeser coming into this, I, I think we would have said would probably be enough for the Ducks to win it. Yeah. Um, but the Beavers, again, with just one of the the, the all-time great <laughs> late surges come back. From I still down, don't know what to thir- say. From down by 21 points uh, to post a 38 spot to outdo the Ducks by four. And and so it just popped in my head again. So like, okay, so Oregon was averaging 40 points a game. So Oregon State defense did hold them below their their average. Two of those they got on short fields because of interceptions. So they have 14 points on short field interceptions. But Oregon, I think what, Oregon State's the second best rush defense in the conference and Oregon was one? Uh, flip. Is that right? Flip, flip. flip it. Oregon, okay, State Oregon, State's the, one. Oregon State had the number one rush defense in the conference Oregon was number two Oregon State like just ran the freaking ball down their throats yeah and it, you know you look at the total yardage numbers Oregon led that 470 to 328 most of that was a product of Oregon State being on the receiving end of some really short fields during that comeback and of course that is what helped the Beavers to that comeback you know, getting the ball at the two, getting the ball at the 28 um, and having short fields to work with. But let's look at that rushing number because it, it was absolutely striking. We said this was a game that would be one in the trenches. It would be one with whichever team could establish the run game more. And Oregon State nearly doubled the Ducks up in that category, rushing for 268 yards against a top 20 run defense in the country while giving up 143 to one of the best rushing offenses this was one of our keys, Angie. This was a matchup that we highlighted at extreme length throughout the week, and Oregon State just absolutely dominated. And it started with Damian Martinez, who crossed the 100-yard mark for his sixth straight game with 103 yards, tying Steven Jackson for the most consecutive games, crossing the century mark at Oregon State. It, it, I mean, unreal. I mean, we talked about keys to the game being that Oregon State was going to need to pass the ball. Oregon State became so one-dimensional, and they still were able to do what they needed to do. I, I, I again, I don't even know, like where to begin there. Uh, disappointing on one end that Oregon State could not get the passing game going, but unreal. And I, it was it was funny because when I was writing, that's what she said for tomorrow. So I don't know. If, so Oregon was converting seventy percent of fourth down conversions offensively. Mm-hmm. but Oregon State was only allowing 42% defensively. I don't know if Dan Lanning just didn't look at that and thought they could just run at a 70% clip or what, but um, that was that was an interesting stat as well. It was a whole group effort for the Oregon State running game. Martinez, of course, led them with the 103, but Jam Griffin on eight carries goes for 75 yards, had a couple of big ones there. Deshaun Fenwick goes for 53 and a touchdown. So you got your top three guys all getting above 50 rushing yards, which is likely the first time that has happened since the Montana Montana State game. I haven't checked, but I believe it is. And then Isaiah Newell didn't get above 50 yards, but he took two carries and they both went for touchdowns. And Angie and I were quietly celebrating for him in the press box because this is a guy who has been at Oregon State for multiple years, has Great worked teammate. behind some of the all-time greats 
BJ Baylor, Jamar Jefferson, um, now Damian Martinez, and and has quietly waited his turn. Um, and and somebody who has gotten some run this year as well, but hadn't gotten into the end zone. He scored two of the biggest touchdowns in Oregon State football history in this game um, and was a, a key factor in Oregon State winning it. And then I also want to just uh, Deshaun Fenwick. So here's a guy who basically lost his starting job partway through the season, has been hurt now basically ever since uh, in a boot and not available to go. Rushed for 53 yards at a touchdown, but I'll tell you what, his best run was that first down run on the Beavers' yeah. last possession to secure that they could take the victory formation for the rest of the game. Huge, huge run. Yep, Bengal Branson also posted two rushing touchdowns. They were both sneak plays. Uh, one of them, again, shouldn't have been necessary because Jack Coletto did score a touchdown, uh, but it was called back, again, just inexplicably by those Pac-12 refs. Uh, but Goldbranson did punch it in on the next play. Four carries for seven yards and two touchdowns. It wasn't the like big rushing game that he had against ASU, but some of those plays where you know he extended it a little bit and then took off for a few yards against the Sun Devils, we saw him do that a couple of times against the Ducks. So you know, again, just veteran moves by a first-year starter where you know you don't like what you see downfield, but then you take off. And I thought it was impressive to see him make an impact in the rushing game, even when he couldn't get anything going through the air. Yeah. Um, looking at the, uh, the, the efficiency numbers in the running game, Oregon state averaged 6.2 yards per carry to Oregon's 3.4. And Angie, the stat that, um, that I, I, I dove into here that stands out to me and, and is the story of this running game is that Oregon had a long run of 13 yards. That was, that was the ducks longest run on the day. Oregon state had eight <laughs> rushes for 13 or more yards. Crazy. That's that's explosiveness in a yeah. nutshell, right there. Yeah, and they knew what the Beavers were going to do, and they still couldn't stop it. That's even more impressive. Because the Beavers did not throw a single pass during the twenty-one point comeback. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just remarkable. <laughs> Seriously, remarkable. I, when, I shake my when head. The defense knows what's coming, and you can still do it at yeah. a high efficiency rate. Is that's that's Oregon State's identity right there uh, in the passing game. Man, this is the absolute most lopsided thing I have seen all year in in any category, I think. And it's Oregon's 327 passing yards to Oregon State's 60. Ben Goldbranson goes 6 of 13 for 60 yards, no touchdowns, and two interceptions after starting 3 of 3 for 40 yards. So two-thirds of his passing yards for the game came on the opening drive. He went 2 of 4 overall in the second half uh, and, and finished with easily his worst game as an Oregon state quarterback, which going into the game again, Angie, like you said, if, if, if you had told me that Ben Branson would have his worst game as a Beaver and that the Beavers won, I would have told you that you were out of your mind. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this is, it's just crazy. Six completions, the whole game. On the receiving end of them, Silas Bolden, uh, Tyjon Lindsay, Trayshawn Harrison all had two catches each um, to account for the entirety of those your six. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Two each. Uh, on the flip side, Bo Nix goes to 27 of 41 for the 327, two touchdowns and no picks. So really just, I, I mean, a complete polar opposites here. You know, you had one quarterback who was efficient, who was making big plays. You know, he found Chase Coda for what I believe went down as a 44-yard touchdown. Uh, Chase Coda led the Ducks with nine catches for 136 yards and a touchdown. And Troy Flick. Troy Franklin had eight for 78 yards and a touchdown. Uh, 
And yet Oregon State's running game just mitigated all of that. And basically Damian Martinez and Isaiah Newell and all of them said, yeah, we don't care what you're doing through the air. We're just going to punch it down your throat. And there you go. Yeah. No. That was the and they story. were helped with some short fields. But um, yeah, it was, I still, I, I, yeah, I woke up this morning and I kind of took me a minute. I was like, wait, <laughs> wait, did that really happen? A couple of defensive performances I want to highlight here. Um, some of the best numbers we have seen all season. And it, it yeah. starts with Catano Ladapo at the safety position with a career high 17 tackles. Uh, Beaver didn't half, miss him. Yeah. Quietly, one of the best defenders on this team. Half a tackle for loss, as did uh, as did record Omar Spates with his 13 tackles as well. So your, your two leading tacklers combined for 30 stops. That's impressive. Kyrie Fisher-Morris at the other inside linebacker spot had 11 tackles, one of them for a loss, and a quarterback hurry. So, And he um, had two to, two passes broken up that really could have been picks. One could have been a pick six. Yeah. yeah a couple of – and those were both during the, the comeback where, yeah, Angie, yeah. you and I were both saying in the press box, you know, if, I mean, if they score a pick six here, like, yeah, look out, game look over. Out. Um, and, and Kyrie almost had a couple of them. Carter um, hit I, me this really is, hard, too, in the – press box at one point he went boom <laughs> on accident of course it was one of those like whoa did that just happen yeah exactly it was like whoa did you see that did that just happen um but so it, those high tackle numbers inflated by the fact that oregon ran uh i don't have the number here yet but uh close to 100 offensive plays oregon state had 91 tackles total uh which is a, an absurd number there were just so many offensive plays for both teams in this game um, yeah, which I want to highlight. I want to highlight Connor Johnson's comment over here because right. um, he says, "I think Stover's minutes should go down to give a few more to Chatfield or Lolohea going forward." I totally agree. I think I even said, I think I said that to Carter earlier in the maybe the season or, or before the game started, saying, "I need to see something from Corey Stover because I'm not seeing enough to warrant the playing time." He's, he's. I mean, as an edge rusher, he's not making that. Now he's doing some other things in the in the defense, but it's not getting to the to the to the quarterback. I'll use the Lolo Hey I mentioned as kind of a segue here into the the tackle for loss and sack categories, where Oregon State was completely dominant. Yeah. Um, there were two sacks in this game, one for each side, and and the Beavers recording a sack at all I think is notable, considering Oregon had only given up three going into the game all year, um, far and away the the best mark in the country, and it was Sione Lolo Hea and James Rawls on the defensive line combining to sack Bo Nix. Uh, but the Beavers with seven tackles for loss, Angie, uh, it's one of the best performances of the year, and it came against an offensive line that may win the Joe Moore Award. It yeah. will be a finalist for sure if it isn't already. Uh, one of the best offensive lines in the country, an elite quarterback, and two running backs who are, again, among the best in the Pac-12, and the Beavers stopped them behind the line seven times and recorded one of the four sacks against Bo Nix all year. Yeah, I, and I think that is something that maybe gets overlooked in the whole thing is just how good Oregon is, um, that this wasn't going to be a cakewalk game. Um, this was a tough game with some, you know, you look maybe recruiting ranking-wise, Oregon is just stacked talent-wise. Oregon State held their own. The Beavers, I thought, also protected up front really well. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the talent. Brandon Dorless, yeah. Noah Sewell. You know, that front yeah. seven is is loaded uh, for Oregon, and the Ducks only got into the backfield once. One yeah. tackle for and loss, with, and, it, and with, it was the sack. With a backup center 
and a backup guard in play yeah. backup and the backup center is probably listening to Peter, you know, Peter Riley Osborne, but he's still just a little undersized, especially for going against Oregon. And he held his own Yeah, huge. Impressive stuff in the trenches. Again, you know, we talk about Oregon state's identity being a physical team, being a run first team. Um, and I, I thought Oregon state can converted on that. Yeah. Um, and, and you really see it there in, in the tackle for loss numbers. And if, you know, the Oregon state, Oregon state defense for all the improvements it's made, we have had some concerns about the front seven, um, but it, it stepped up. I lost you there for a second. Oh, hopefully I'm back. Sorry. You're back. You're back. All right. Um, let's move to the turnover category because this was a big one. And I, I think that the numbers are deceptive here because at the end of the day, you've got Oregon state with three and Oregon with zero. But when you add in the turnovers on downs, yeah. Oregon with five turnovers on downs, Oregon State with one. Essentially, you've you've got your turn your turnovers at five four in favor of the Beavs rather than three nothing in well, favor. Well, and then I would actually include the um, muff punt, the 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 snap, and right. also um, the block. Yeah, the, those the are, muff those punt in, or the those are the, in the, essence. Um, you know, turnovers as well. Turnovers on right. downs. So the, the the fumbled punt snap does go as okay. A yeah, that's on downs. one. Okay. Um, but the blocked punt again. You know, that's yeah. that flips field position by about fifty yards. Um, so that that absolutely. You know, you could you can basically say Oregon had six turnovers uh, to Oregon State's four when you can uh, when you combine all of the the turnovers on downs, the, the big plays on special teams. I thought special teams played a huge role in this game. There were a lot of questions about it in the post-game press conference. One that won't get talked about a whole lot is the kickoff, where Oregon State, um, I, I believe it was Everett Hayes doing kickoffs again, placed the ball right at the goal line. It bounced straight up, and Oregon had no choice but to bring it out. They brought it out to about the 10-yard line and, and you know just have horrible field position there. Yeah. And again, that was one of those, those field position battles where Oregon State took advantage of it and had a short field to work with. So yeah. special teams playing a huge role in this thing. The turnovers on downs, I, I think, probably the story of the second half when you're talking about the Oregon State defense. Um, but on, on the flip side, Oregon State did not play a clean game, and it started with Ben Goldbranson. Yeah, completely. He had the um, he, he had the two interceptions. And Angie, this is a stat that Eric brought up while we were working in the media room. Um, those two interceptions were returned for 63 yards by Christian Gonzalez and Jeffrey Bassa. Oregon State had 60 passing yards in this game. <laughs> Oregon had 63 interception return yards. Yeah. So the Ducks actually produced more on Oregon State's passes than Oregon State did, yeah. which is an unbelievable stat. How bad Oregon State's passing game was. Treshawn Harrison also fumbled yes. um, a, uh, after making a catch. To uh, that, that was, I believe, to set up the final drive, the, the final touchdown drive for Oregon during yes. that kind yeah. of that that lull uh, in the middle of the game. Uh, any other stats, Angie, that you want to highlight? I, I feel like we threw a bunch of numbers and yeah, and I mean, I think those are the big ones. I, I do. I, I think those turnovers on downs were huge, and maybe don't get looked at as on turnovers, but um, definitely Oregon State won the turnover battle when you consider that. Yeah. All right, we're going to move through the game flow section really quickly here. There are, again, I, I talk about how many plays the Ducks ran in this thing. There were so many possessions in this yeah. game. There you were eight possessions just like at the start of the third quarter, like back and forth. 
Like, if you look at the drive chart, it's absolutely absurd. But I think what's funny about it is there were three possessions total in the first quarter. Yeah. So the first one, and, and I want to highlight this because I, I thought very early on, we saw that special teams were going to be a factor in this game. Field goal kicking had been a major point of concern for Oregon State coming into this game. Everett Hayes looked like he completely lost it, you know, at, at Arizona State, missing that 23-yarder at the very end. What does he do? Comes out and hits a 50-yarder on the first drive of the game. Ben Goldbrands goes three for three for 40 yards. The drive stalls at the 31, and then Hayes just knocks a, a 50-yarder through. Um, and I, I thought that was big, you know, for him to get some confidence there. Obviously, Oregon State didn't need him the rest of the way, but um, a, a huge field goal there to get the Beavers on the board first. Yeah. Um, but Angie, let's talk about then Oregon's response because, you know, this – it was a back and forth game until yeah. the both both teams had their meltdown moments. And and this is where the game I, I think was at its best. Um and and on, on the ensuing drive, Bo Nix found Chase Cota for a 44 yard touchdown. Uh did you have any concerns about Oregon State's defense after what you saw it do on the first drive? Because it felt like both teams kind of moved the ball like a hot knife through butter a little bit. Yeah. Um, and of course it came to a head with Cota's 44 yard touchdown. I, I wasn't. Um, but I mean, the first two potentially, because I knew we weren't going to be able to trade touchdowns for field goals. But um, no, I, I was a little more concerned when Oregon State was, or when Oregon started gashing them in the run game, um, but then Oregon State was able to tighten that up. Yeah. Um, Cole Branson snuck it in on, on the next drive. That So, okay, so that's when Levengood uh, was injured. Yeah. It was at the end of the first quarter. Uh, second quarter, again, it was it was more of that back and forth stuff. The defense is actually kind of came to play a little bit um, after both after both teams scored on the first drives. I, I thought once it settled down a little bit that, you know, I looked back on it and said, all right, well, both teams script their opening drive. Yeah. They got exactly what they wanted. Um, Those two offensive coordinators who are, great in their craft. Of course, Kenny Dillingham just took the Arizona state job. So clearly he's good at what he does. We know Brian Lindgren is good um, with his scripted stuff at Oregon state. So I didn't feel like it was going to become a, some sort of shootout um, after both defensive settled in there. Um, okay. So let's talk about where the momentum flipped and, and some of the plays that occurred in there because things really did snowball for Oregon yeah. state. Yeah. And I want to highlight some of the plays that um, but that, but you say it snowballed. It didn't snowball because at half it was still only 1410. It's true. It Where it snowballed was quarter. was really in the third quarter, third I quarter. think. Yeah. Um, but so I, I think you have to give Oregon credit for taking advantage of, you know, Oregon State's down at the five yard line. It has a chance to make this a two score game. But very quickly, you saw like a 21-28 point turnaround where you say, okay, well, Oregon State looked like it was going to score a touchdown, so there's seven points there. Flips the other way immediately with Oregon scoring a touchdown. That's a 14-point flip in the span of one yeah. possession. Yeah. Troy Franklin scores a nine-yard touchdown as Oregon takes the lead, and then that is where it snowballed after the – Yes. Um, after the after halftime. Oregon actually went three and out on its first drive yeah. of the third quarter. But then, but then Oregon State. I, I felt like <laughs> – yeah, I, I felt like really the play that that prompted the snowball was Bengal Branson's interception to Jeffrey Bossa. He returned it to the two yard line, yeah. um, and and that set up a touchdown on the next play. I, I don't have the actual stat broadcast um, drive chart yeah. here, so I don't know how many points Oregon scored in X amount of time. Um, but this went from an Oregon State lead to a 21-point deficit in the span of about half a quarter. Yeah. No, it was like 
I think it was like the first four minutes of the third quarter. Yeah. Um, okay. So did you, where, if you had to pick a play where this flipped for Oregon state, do you think it's the Damian Martinez 43 yard run at the end of the third quarter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because Harrison fumbled. So, I mean, yeah, they had all these, we had a three and out, they had a five yard TD run. I mean, it, Harrison has his fumble at the Oregon state 42. They settle for a field goal. Oregon has to settle for a field goal there. Um, and then, um, wait, I'm looking here. Oh yeah. So then, um, the very last drive of the third quarter was the Martinez 43 yard run capped off by a Fenwick, uh, touchdown run, but that 43 yard run really was the start of like the turnaround. I felt like it woke up the crowd a little bit. Oregon's only points the rest of the way came at the the very beginning of the fourth. Camden yeah. Lewis hit his second field goal. It was a 29-yarder. Um, and then we don't have to talk about every scoring play the rest of the no. way, but Oregon State obviously scored four touchdowns, and it took advantage of all of those turnovers on downs that we just talked about. Oregon turned the ball over on downs on four straight possessions, and Oregon State turned every single one of them into a touchdown. That's that is the definition of turning defense into offense. We talk well, about that a, a lot in like in, in basketball, you know, transition yeah. points and whatnot, but points off of turnovers in football are absolutely huge because huge. that's where you see the flips. You know, that's where you see the, oh, well, it looked like seven points going yeah. that way, seven points going that way. And th- in football, it's really hard it's to bounce back from yeah. that. Um, I, so then a couple defensive plays I want to highlight. The first being um, Oregon on Oregon's second to last possession. They were at their own 28. They went for it on fourth down. And that is the play. Jaden Grant, I mean, he just stuffed Knicks, like behind the line of scrimmage. And he told us in the press conference how he recognized the play when they were lined up, told his nickel, told, told Ryan Cooper, hey, I'm going this way. You cover this side. And I mean, that was that, that was right there, that heart of a champion of this is not he, they are not getting a first down the second. And can, this, can, I, can I pause right yeah, here yeah. real quick? Because I want to say that I think that exemplifies out coaching. Yes. You know, players can take it upon themselves to dive into all the film they want, but at the end of the day, it's, it's coaches that are scheming it and kind of pointing out, okay, this is a tendency here. This is, you know, what they like to run. I thought Trent Bray outcoached Kenny Dillingham oh, on that play. Oregon completely. state was, Oregon state was in the exact position it needed to be to stop that particular play call. And again, eerily reminiscent of Oregon's fourth down conversion attempt at Washington, Washington. between its own 20 and 30, you know, you've got a running play dialed up. It looked like an option. Mm-hmm. Nick's keeps it instead of giving it off this time. And Oregon state still stopped it. I thought that reflected more on the coaching than anything else. Well, and then the, the other point, and, and this one, this one goes back that fourth down or that four down stance that Oregon State had on the Ducks last possession to keep mm-hmm. them out of the end zone ranks right up there with 2007 at Cal. Absolutely. It was yeah. beautiful. The Ducks had gone. So that drive ended at 12 plays for 72 yards yes. and it ended at Oregon State's three. There were a couple of run plays. Oregon ran it, I believe, three times in a row to get up to fourth yeah. down. And then they passed it on fourth. They called a timeout yeah. to set it up. Um Oregon State. Because they had, had a jumbo package up. in at one point. Right. Oregon State brought in all their linemen. And then they- yeah, Oregon Oregon State countered with a, a lineup that was so cool to see. So John Miller came in at, at linebacker because he's huge. 
Jack Coletto was out in coverage on a tight end out wide. Um, something that <laughs> it was one of those one of those formations and and personnel packages that you don't see very often. Um, but to, again, to Oregon State's credit, matched up so well against one of the best offensive lines in the country. Um, and then how about Alex Austin making yeah. a, a great play in coverage on the fourth down to seal the game? Huge, huge. You mentioned Deshaun Fenwick picking up that first down on the offensive possession uh, that ensued as well. Ran it three times, got the first down, victory formation, ball game, rushed the field, party in the USA. Yep. So much. Do we need to talk about party in the USA being Oregon State's new anthem? I love it. Let's do it. I mean, we got John Warren raising his hands in the press box. Steve Grass. Steve Grass. All of the media members dancing along to it. yeah, it's 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 kind of trivial, but there, there's something to it. You know, we talk we've had these discussions about, oh, you know, do they need to move on from TNT before the fourth quarter? Do they need to you know, do they need to do sing alongs and all this stuff? Party in the USA, for, for whatever reason, has been one of those things that Oregon State fans have just really latched onto, particularly the students as that fourth quarter sing along. Um, but it's for whatever oh, reason, and it's, it's, it's so much those- better than shout, so much better than shout. Yeah, PM in the YouTube chat saying uh, party in the USA, a greater than sign shout, um, potentially a new tradition there for Oregon State that I think because it's again, it's it's so weird how these things get cemented in in traditionalism, but Oregon State winning this game and playing party in the USA afterwards and party in the USA being that rallying song while Oregon State is coming back from the huge deficit like when you think of that comeback and when you think of the celebration on the field, you're going to think of that song playing. I, I think it's I think it's somewhat of a new anthem for for this football program as as funny as it may be. So fun. All right. Um, we will let's revisit our keys to the game real quick and then we have a couple of damn questions to answer from Twitter and then we'll get out of here. Uh, we have crossed the hour mark here. I, I knew we were gonna go long. Um, but we'll kind of we'll see if we can cruise to the, yeah. the finish line here. I feel like Angie, you and I have I, I, at least me, I feel like I've rambled in this thing, but I knew coming into this, this was going to be a word salad type, just stream of consciousness podcast, because there are so many things to digest from this game. Um, but let's go back and revisit our keys to the game and start with what what we said for the offense, for Oregon State's offense. We both agreed Ben Branson was going to have, I said, his best passing game. I said it was a necessity. You said the Beavers <laughs> have to have a downfield passing attack. And Turned out we it was wrong. not, in fact, a necessity. In fact, throwing the ball at all was not a necessity. The yeah. Beavers scoring four Which touchdowns. I don't think they're going to win many games if they have to rely on just the run game, but it worked. So who are we to question, Carter? And I think, you know, what's interesting too, Angie, is when I think about when Oregon State has had success over Oregon in recent years, it's been bullying them at the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Go back to 2016, Ryan Null ran all over the Ducks. 2020, it was Jamar Jefferson posting the most rushing yards in the series, uh, close to 250 yards. And then in this one, it was Oregon State racking up, uh, again, over 250 as a team, 6.2 per carry, five rushing touchdowns. I don't know what it is, but that has been the key to Oregon State beating Oregon over the last half decade. Yep, and just got to go with it. Okay, on the flip side, Angie, you said Oregon State had to stop the Ducks rushing attack. Um, and they did. I, I, I marked this as a success. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think it was, it, you know, it's not nine yards like they let Cal run for. But, I mean, this was a, a very good running team, and they, they did slow them. 
I said that Oregon State was going to have to find a way to pressure Bo Nix without opening up things downfield. Um, it's that balancing act you have to do between pressuring a quarterback when he's got a great offensive line, when he's mobile, when healthy, mm-hmm. um, but also taking away his options downfield. I thought Oregon State did, did that to perfection in this one. Yeah, It had, did. like I said, one of the four sacks against Knicks this year, five quarterback hurries. So he was under duress quite a bit, um, but then downfield, five pass yeah. breaks up, five pass breakups. They held Bo Nix to 66% passing, which sounds like a pretty good number for a quarterback, but it's still quite a bit lower than what he averages. Nix entered the game at about a 72% rate. Um, and he had negative five rushing yards too on, on five carries. Two of those were were actual design runs, and one of them was a sack. Bo Nix has been the most electric running quarterback in the country with his, yeah. I believe, 14 touchdowns. Um, I thought they defended Bo Nix to, to near perfection. Yeah, no, they, they held him in check because he is their biggest offensive weapon. All right. You've waited long enough. If, if you were one of the few who asked a damn question on Twitter, we're going to get to it right here. And we'll start with PM, who I know is still listening live on YouTube. PM, we'll start with your question here. Uh, PM says, I'm 30. I went to my first game in 2006 against USC. This was my first Civil War game and second game ever. In my opinion, that was the greatest live event I've ever been to. How did the crowd sound on the other side of the field? Because my ears are still ringing. Angie and I talked about the atmosphere a little bit at the beginning of the uh, of the episode, but Angie, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how that compared to years where, you know, maybe or maybe stadium is not sold out, but you've got 28,000 fans dispersed around the whole thing. Um, did you feel like the the way I felt it, it sounded against USC was that it was kind of like a wall of noise? Is that yeah. kind of yeah, no, it was. It, it really is. It, it's it's weird to describe it as, you know, the fans are all on one side, so they hear it from their perspective. But from our perspective, it's it's kind of a weird. It is like, weird because like then we have the, the speakers sensation. on top of us, too. But the crowd noise was so loud. And like I said, on the field level, I think is where you really you really hear it because it's it's just kind of raining down on you with that new construction coming up, too. I'm making hand signals. So if you're not even seeing me on, on the podcast, but the backside, the new side of Reeser is coming up way more, you know, brick and concrete up than even during the USC game, just holding that sound in the field level is very, very loud, very loud. So PM also adds that. And by live event, he means better than any concert blazer game and more. It, it really did. I, I shout out to Sarah Alcano and her events yeah. team at Oregon state, because Like I said, I've been going to Oregon State games since the 90s when I was a student. And what they've done from a fan engagement um, is amazing. And I have to say, I I know some older fans aren't fans of the DJ, but that just keeps the the atmosphere, everything so, I mean, it's so much better than back in the day when it was just chainsaw noise and, and some of that. Brian Miller in the in the YouTube chat says that the timing for the tail slap on kickoffs was always off and felt weird. Um, I actually didn't notice this from our side, and I think some of that comes from the speakers that are above the press box yeah. is is mainly what the fans on the other side are hearing. And obviously, sound travels a little differently than you know somebody clapping on their side. So I can see where there might be a bit of a disconnect between the prompt on one side of the stadium and the actual clap on the other side. Um, yeah. Pacific Beaver says, got to practice those tail slaps. Um, I think that's a fun tradition that they introduced last year. Uh, let's move on to our next damn question from Twitter. 
William Schulten asks, what in the world do we do about the quarterback position moving forward? Angie, this is a, a question that I know <laughs> you, um, you, you have a, an answer for, and I'll, I'll throw it to yeah. you. I think it starts with the transfer portal, but I think long-term we're looking at Aiden Childs as being the answer here, right? Yeah. I mean, so if there's one point of criticism that I have with Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren is the fact that these guys are offensive guys. Smith was a quarterback and they have really struggled to recruit a quarterback, a solid quarterback, not just, you know, a, a quarterback, but a good one. Aiden Childs is that guy, but you cannot expect a 17 year old to come in in December, January. And, and he could, I mean, maybe he gets in there and, and, but Oregon state needs to go to the portal and they need a, another guy that maybe has a year. When you, when you look at the teams this year, just in the pac 12, I know we talked about this in an earlier pod, that the best teams in the conference, I mean, you look at USC new transfer, um, Washington with Penix transfer, um, Cam Ward at Washington state transfer, Arizona transfer. I mean, you go up and down the top teams in the conference and they all went to the portal and got experience, an experienced uh, signal caller. I am not sold that. I mean, first of all, Carter and I were talking on the sideline. We don't even know where Chance Nolan is. I even asked the question yesterday whether he was still with the program because I felt it felt it was really weird to not even see him in street clothes on the sideline. He is apparently still with the program. So you really have to wonder, this injury must be really bad. So um, is he even going to be a viable option next year? Ben Goldbranson, unless he takes a ginormous leap, I, I just don't, you know, this season has felt like Oregon State is only as good as the quarterback play. So um, I, I really do think you need to go to the portal. And maybe and maybe Aiden, I mean, I do say Aiden Childs is the future, Carter. Um, he's yeah, but gonna not right do, away. He's going to do some special things, but you also don't want to ruin a guy's confidence too and throw him in too early. Yeah, I see Aiden Childs taking over as a second or third year player. Um, I, I think, you know, he, he's going to come into this program really raw. Like you said, he's going to be 17 when he enrolls early. Um, he is on the younger end to begin with. I mean, think about Damian Martinez, who came in as a 17 year old as well. He didn't turn 18 until football season started. So I, I, um, I'm going to, I'm Clint, Clint Moses here said injury looked Jake Luton type bad. Totally. I, I agree. Okay. He did walk. I mean, he walked off. It wasn't. He actually Jake played Luton was, through it. For, yeah. He played through know. it for a couple plays. Um, whereas Jake Luton was like stretchered off, but Jake Luton was on the sideline in street close yeah. for, you know, and we have not seen chance at all. Yeah. I can pretty much tell you with, with almost near certainty that, that he isn't in the coach's box either. Cause I haven't seen him on yeah. our yeah. side of research, but um yeah, no, it just, it's, it's just I, guess, I guess my, dynamic. Yeah, my, my so, answer yes, to the portal, question. Portal and Aiden Childs. This yeah. is, oh, and I, I, okay, this is the, the short answer. I have not, I told this to a group of friends in a text group just a couple days ago. Aiden Childs is the first quarterback that under Smith's tenure that I've been excited about. Yeah. Uh, my answer to the question is Oregon State has to go find a portal, quarter, a portal quarterback to start next year. Um, I, I would be curious to see what Ben Goldbranson looks like after a year of more reps in, in spring camp and fall camp. You know, if he enters camp as the guy, I'm curious if, if those, you know, obviously the, the first quarterback takes more reps than anybody else in practice. I'm curious to see if that would translate 
to decent improvement. But I, I, I just think if Oregon State wants to have success next year, it's going to have to bring in an experienced guy. I think this is one of those situations where you could go after a grad transfer where you know you're only going to get one this is year a one out year. of him. Yep, a one-and-done guy. Because you expect Aiden Childs to step in in year two, maybe year three, um, as, as somebody who can lead your program for a couple of years. Give him a year to develop behind uh, you know, a, a redshirt senior guy who's coming in for his fifth or sixth year. Um, I, I think this is, I think this is the year to do it. The key is to make it happen. Obviously, you know, we go back to the JT Daniels situation last year. It's not easy to bring these guys in. No. Um, but but if, I, I'm going to take Beavers, it a step if further. Can, if, can, if they can hit a home run in the transfer portal here, look out. But I'm going to take it a step further because I think it's unfair to put all of the pressure on quarterback Yeah. because Oregon State still doesn't have great wide receiver play and you cannot put all the pressure on a quarterback if your wide receivers struggle to get open. Jerry, you won in the chat, uh, brings up a good point. Ben Goldbranson seven and one as a starter. So yeah, but he hasn't looked is, good doing it. Right. Sorry. I mean, I mean, there is, there is uh, something to be said for the way the defense has carried this team, but I would it, say Oregon point. state is like Oregon state is a great quarterback away though, from being um, 11 and one. 11 and one right now. Yeah. So. Uh, Brendan Fitzpatrick asks on Twitter, what is the best or worst bowl game we can go to now? Again, Angie and I will dive into that in the next week or two. Yeah. Uh, I see best case scenario as being the holiday bowl, worst case being the sun bowl, and potentially the most likely now being one of the sun bowl or the Las Vegas bowl. Personally, I'm rooting for the Vegas bowl. And lastly, Joshua Callaway asks, I feel we need to secure Trent Bray permanently. Would you try and keep him and get an offensive coordinator to step up or go in another direction. Um, the wording on this, I'm, I'm a little confused, but I think the, the point that's being made here is, do you do you put all of your cards in, in, into Trent Bray staying and, and writing the defense? Um, I, I don't know, Angie, I, I guess I'll, I'll frame it this way. Do you, do you make a change at offensive coordinator? I don't. I mean, I... As, as frustrating as Bray as or as Lindgren can be from time to time, um, I think he still um, does some pretty creative things and, and does some things well. Um, quarterback play has got to get better. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I never thought I'd hear the day that I thought said Oregon State offense was not good. Um, and I'm not saying it's bad; it's just not great. It's not at the elite level yet. Now Bray, absolutely, they need yeah. to do whatever they can, pay him top. Pac-12 level coordinator money because you cannot lose him need to, I mean, he is what he has done with this defense. And this might be another whole podcast for us, Carter, what he has done with this defense in one year's time. I'm so excited what he can do, you know, get him, get another edge rush or two. That's mm -hmm. and, and you know what? I'm going to promise right now, Carter and I'll come back into another pod to talk recruiting because we are three weeks away from signing day. And yep. that's a whole nother topic that I have a ton of info on. Um, so we'll come back and talk about that recruiting. One more from Joshua, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, this kind of goes back to the conversation we just had about the quarterbacks and, and potentially a change at, at coordinator. But Joshua asks, what should be done about the offense sputtering at times and it not being as, as effective as it should? Do you change the quarterback, the offensive coordinator, the scheme, all a combination? Um, quarterback, I think, again, it comes back to the quarterback. But like Angie said, Oregon State needs more talent at wide receiver. It needs height there. Um, and and needs... a true home run guy. Oregon State does. I mean, we have, you know, Anthony Gould has shown flashes. 
uh, Silas Bolden, but they're also small and they can't sometimes get off the line. They can't yeah. on a bump and run system. So a bigger body um, or someone that can actually be a home run. You, and, and it's not, these are little things. I mean, this is just where this would is what Oregon State needs to take that next step to be an elite team. The Beavers will be just fine on the offensive line. They'll be great at tight end for years to come. I don't see those being an issue. Um, so I, you know, I think you, you improve your passing game by changing your personnel at quarterback and wide receiver. And I think the scheme will be just fine. You know, and you Brian Lindgren will always be good for a head scratcher or two, but yeah. he is still one of the best coordinators in this conference, I believe. Um, and with the right personnel, I think it'll unlock a lot more of that playbook. As well. I mean, and think about you guys, Oregon state lost their like number one target in Musgrave in game at the end of game two this year. So um, Musgrave was going to be that safety net um, dump off guy. And this is something Carter and I talked about from fall camp. It was that Oregon State was struggling to to move the football at times. So it'll it'll come. These are great off-season yeah. conversations that we will have over the next what nine months. Um it's kind of kind of hard to believe regular season's over, Angie. We uh we did it. We made it. We did it, we made it. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Here, I'll we'll we'll get to an hour and twenty and we'll end with this from the YouTube chat. This is a good question. Uh, Brian Miller says, should we be scared of someone poaching Martinez? I have heard this question raised from a variety of people. You know, I, I think they even mentioned on the broadcast, you know, Rod Gilmore brought up Damian Martinez potentially being um, attracted by, by NIL suitors at other schools. I could see it happening, but I, I think Oregon State, now that it is in the NIL space, will do all it can to hold on to guys like Martinez. And again, Damian Martinez is a Jonathan Smith guy through and through. I, I'm I'm not terribly concerned about him leaving. Yeah, this and this is where fans are going to need to step up. I mean, it's as hard as this is. I mean, Oregon State is never going to have the money of an Alabama or Georgia or Oregon or SC, but fans are going to need to step up if we're going to see Oregon State be able to retain and recruit. That's another topic too. Yep, Oregon State thirty-eight, Oregon thirty-four. Meeting number one hundred and twenty-six. Oregon State comes back and wins it in absolutely remarkable fashion. Angie and I were there. We have more content up at Beaver Blitz. In fact, while we were recording this, uh, a bunch of photos just went live on the site. So if you want to scroll through some of those and, and see Angie and I's favorite photos from the game, uh, those are up. That's what she said will be live for our VIP members tomorrow on Monday. Um, so again, just another reason to take advantage of our 75% off deal at Beaver Blitz that runs through Cyber Monday. It's not also gonna a find good a deal gift. better than this. I'm not gonna, you know, if even if you're a member, maybe your brother or your dad or your wife or your girlfriend would enjoy their own Beaver Blitz membership. It's a good gift. And you on can that direct note, message me and I can help you make it happen. On that note, we'll get out of here. We'll let you get on with your Sunday evening if if you've been watching us live. Thank you to everyone who listened to us throughout the regular season. We are not done yet. I can promise you that. In fact, I believe we're going to come back later in the week, um, if not next weekend, to talk some bowl season stuff, to look ahead to, to National Signing Day. I mean, there's still no shortage of stuff going on at Oregon State between um, kind of this moratorium period, if, if you will, between the regular season and bowl season. Of course, we're going to cover bowl season in depth. Um, we'll be back to our, our regularly scheduled programming as far as game preview content goes during bowl week whenever that may be um but we will keep you apprised of that situation and, and cover everything that occurs between now and then so angie anything to add before we get out 
No, what a season. Nine and three. Nine and three, Carter. Oregon State has won nine football games, and we'll leave you on that reminder. Hey, Andy, and hey, one more thing. Yep. Oregon is the Beaver State. <laughs> it's true. That is true. You can follow her on Twitter on Twitter at Angie Machado One. You can follow me at Carter Baines. Thanks for bearing with us through a really long episode where we kind of just spoke randomly at times. Uh, but we'll be back for a more structured episode of the Damn Podcast uh, in a couple of days, if if not a week. But thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.